Today, my guest is Noel Bagwell. He is a preventative lawyer. So basically, his superpower is to prevent people from having massive legal debt. And he's also almost a very brand new author with his brand new book coming out very, very soon, which is called Profit from Legal. And he's also a podcast host from the podcast called Profit from Legal. I've spent the last two years learning from industry experts and successful business owners, going behind the scenes to discover what makes these entrepreneurs successful. Follow along with season eight of Unleashed Focus podcast, where I dive in deeper than ever before, unlocking trade secrets, discovering what makes these entrepreneurs successful, but also really understanding their habits, frameworks, blueprints, secrets, and so much more. I also ask one important question, and that is how they have grown and scaled their business to a million or more. I'm excited that you are here and I can't wait for you to apply these strategies so you can become successful too. Welcome to Unleash Your Focus podcast, the number one place that will help you to start, grow and scale your online business today. Hi, Noel. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, no worries. I'm uh, doing pretty well, thanks. Uh, can you tell the audience where you're from and where did you grow up? A little bit of an introduction to you. Yeah, I'm from uh, near Nashville, Tennessee, so kind of uh, the heartland of, of the uh, southeastern United States. Uh, my law office is in Nashville on West End Avenue. And um, yeah, I kind of grew up in this neck of the woods and never thought after moving away back in 2006 uh, mm -hmm. to go to seminary, I never thought I'd come back. Um, but. I left seminary after about a year, worked in luxury property management for a couple of years in, near Raleigh, North Carolina, mm -hmm. and then decided to go to law school. I went to law school at Cumberland School of Law at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, we have family here, my wife and I, so we decided after law school to come back up. Thought that would be a good place to start, you know, having kids, raising kids mm -hmm. um, with the support of family. So we, we ended up coming back here and uh, opened my law practice right after law school. I just kind of hung my shingle. I did get a job offer, um, you know, to work with a, a guy I had been clerking with, a lawyer I'd been clerking with, who's general counsel for a couple of small regional banks. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. He said, you can either come and work for me as an associate, um, where I'd be, you know, subordinate in the, the law firm, have very little say over my own practice. Um, or you can rent some space for me. And I, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur even more than I wanted to be a lawyer. So I just couldn't pass up the opportunity. He offered me a great deal on rent and just helped me get a, get a good start. Yeah. Um, he's a great guy. And so I hung my shingle out and been practicing law ever since. Um, the, the first law firm was a general practice firm. It was just a name practice, you know, law office of Noel Bagwell, nothing special and took whatever came in the door, but I was really miserable with it. So I went a little more niche uh, several months later. And in January of 2013, I founded Executive LP, which is what I'm doing now, Executive Legal Professionals. It's a professional limited liability company, but we've trademarked Executive LP because the other thing is just a mouthful. And uh, yeah, so we do preventive legal service for small businesses, small to medium sized businesses. I really don't do a ton of litigation. I have I have done a fair amount of litigation before, but mm -hmm. these days I'd prevent lawsuits and we try to avoid charging by the hour, which tend to do everything either on a subscription basis or flat fee. So that's, that's kind of what it's all about. That is pretty impressive because as a small business owner um, and touch wood, I've never had any legal issues, but I've heard of other small business owners having legal issues, especially with trademarks and things like that. Is that something that you encounter 
you know, like somebody would use a name and then that somebody would sue them and they didn't even know that it was a thing is that it's, and it's just, it's just people being clueless. And I mean, I'm one of those people being clueless. Is that then something that you teach people or is that something that you just go out and help them with? Yeah, we, we do. I mean, we do teach. It's a bit of, it's a bit of instruction because, uh, pretty much everywhere, as far as I understand, I mean, I know education systems differ from country to country, but, mm -hmm. Um, at least in the U.S., and I, I think it's the case pretty much globally, there's very little entrepreneurship training at the, like, secondary level. Like, until you get to college, university, or graduate school, you're, you're really not um, in that. And then it's, like, self-directed study, right? Like, you're choosing to, to learn that. But at the point where your education is more or less government-mandated and government-paid for, um, there, it's not like they're offering you uh, entrepreneurship courses or, hey, here's how the law works for small business owners. So most people don't really have that as part of their baseline educational experience. So when they get older and you know they're adults and they decide to start a business or whatever, uh, they learn as they go. Typically, the only people who have the kind of industry knowledge or business knowledge of how, how to really use a lawyer like me, you know, a general counsel attorney well, are people who've had corporate experience. And so they've, they've worked with like in-house legal departments or something like that. I hear small business owners all the time say things like, thank God I haven't had a legal issue yet, or I, I haven't had any legal issues, but I know other people that have. And in the back of my head, there's like this little voice that's just screaming because, you know, it's, it's not that you don't have a legal issue. It's that you don't realize you you already have the legal issue because you have the legal issue when you just have a risk and my job is to keep that risk from becoming a problem and if you encounter a problem that's when most people think okay now i have a legal issue but you had the legal issue well before that you had the legal issue back when it was just a risk and everybody has risks so you need the lawyer before the risk becomes a problem so that you can keep the the problem from happening ideally. And if a problem does crop up, you can solve it really quickly before it becomes a crisis, like losing a key employee or getting sued or someone sends you a cease and desist letter for trademark infringement or copyright infringement, um, where, where then the solution is much more expensive. And ultimately that's why I started Executive LP because um, I had a lot of clients, small, small to medium business owners, all, I mean, that's, that's where my passion is. That's who I want to serve. Those are who my clients are. They, we'd come through my office with matters that I would ask them, why, why didn't you hire a lawyer in the first place? Why did you wait so long? Why did you wait until you had a lawsuit? Now you're spending thousands of dollars in litigation. And they say, oh, it's just too expensive to hire a lawyer. You know, it's just too pricey. And I would say, well, pricier than a few thousand dollars for the lawsuit. And they're like, well, we didn't think we'd have the lawsuit. Nobody ever does until it happens to them. And it's so much cheaper, actually, in the long run, to have a well-written contract, to get a lawyer's advice. And it, it's much more affordable than you would think to hire the preventive lawyer in the first place than to have to hire the litigation attorney to dig you out of a, a hole that you never should have fallen in in the first place. And it's so true. And you, you're talking and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, because it's so exactly, it's true. I completely agree with you. So, yeah. okay. So obviously you're, you're, you're basically prevention is better than cure, right? That's, that's kind of then your motto in, mm -hmm. in this circumstances. So what did, how did you get into the whole lawyer thing in the beginning? Like how, what intrigued you to start this? 
Yeah, I ran from it most of my most of my young adult life. I ran from it because my grandfather was the district attorney, the chief prosecutor in our hometown for 16 years. Wow. And my uh, father practiced law for 19 years. And he did criminal defense, medical malpractice, and personal injury law. He was a hardcore trial lawyer, had offices in three different cities, and uh, was president of the Tennessee Trial Lawyers Association a couple of years. So just imagine... As a young teenager, you know, anytime you get in trouble, that's who you get to argue with to try to get out of your, your punishment. So that's fun. <laughs> it must have um, been hard growing up. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I developed the skills early on, right? You know, debate and all of that. And I have, I have friends who are like, oh, yeah, I was in debate in high school. And I was like, no, <laughs> not like this. Not like this. Um, so I kind of ran from it. I didn't really think I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur, business owner. Mm -hmm. um, but I took a really windy path to get here. I guess you could say that ultimately what made me do exactly what I'm doing today was having that experience with, you know, after I got out of law school, after I finally did decide to, you know, give in and go to law school and, and practice law, um, I had those experiences with small business owners where I, I genuinely felt badly for them. I, I thought, now you're spending so much more than you would have had to, like a couple hundred dollars for a contract or or free, yeah, free. Like I, there was a guy, just to give you an example, he was getting sued for a quarter of a million dollars and I could have prevented his lawsuit for free yeah. if he had just called me at the right time and said, can I do this? Can I do this thing? Like I'm here's I'm I'm in a dispute with this other party and I'm thinking about doing this. Can you help me or is this a good idea? And I would have immediately said, no, never do that. That's a huge, horrible mistake. Literally for the cost of picking up the phone, it would have cost him nothing. And he was getting sued for a quarter of a million dollars. Now, your mileage may vary. It's probably not going to be that way all the time. But a lot of lawyers will, you know, they'll charge you a nominal fee next to nothing, um, really just to keep from wasting their time. They, they, they charge the fee because so many people flake out, I think. You know, they make the appointment and they don't show up and the lawyers book the time. And now he's kind of sitting there on his thumbs waiting for the day to end you know, or trying to find something else to, to do. And so it's just inconsiderate. And so I think a lot of lawyers charge charge a fee because they want to weed out the people who are serious from the people who aren't. But the fee they charge is really just a nominal fee. And so I, I started uh, taking, you know, these, these matters on mostly because I cared about really small businesses and I wanted to find a way to get them to hire the lawyer in advance. It was an interesting problem for me to solve. So... As soon as I perceived the need, you know, there needs to be uh, some kind of preventive, ongoing, always on service for small businesses. Uh, then my mind started racing at the thought of, okay, well, how do we restructure their incentives so that they'll do that? Because right now they're not doing it because they don't have a good incentive to hire the lawyer in advance. And so then it became just a fun puzzle to solve of, you know, well, if I get rid of the billable hour, then they won't feel like they're in a cab with the meter running, you know, they'll, they'll know, well, I'm, I've already paid for the service. I might as well get my use out of it. And that's, that was uh, the first big thing. So uh, we wanted them to feel like they could pick up the phone and call the lawyer without it costing them any extra. So unlimited remote legal consultation. That was just, that had to be a feature. All the nickel and dime stuff that other lawyers do, we thought we'll just include all of that. So all the de minimis legal services that was automatically included. Another big thing was legal research. People would want to call, ask a legal question. It might require research. So we said, we'll include all your legal research. And that was the basis of what we now call Legal Lifeline. And we offer that service. And it has a few other 
services and features that are part of the plan. I won't I won't try to pitch it or anything, but just uh, it's basically all the services that you can expect to use on a on a regular basis throughout a year for a very small business under a million in revenue. And we, we price it out at $4,800 a year U.S. So it comes out to about $400 a month U.S., very affordable. And you with that service, you can always just pick up the phone, talk to a lawyer anytime you need to. It's kind of like having a legal department right down the hall from you. Um, and then we have a more robust service that has a lot of other things in it that the cost of it scales and the size of it scales in terms of number of, assignees, uh, number of attorneys assigned to your account. Um, it scales with the size of your business. So a larger business, you know, obviously they're going to pay more than a, than a smaller business. And, and that's our signet service. It starts at a million and goes up from there. I mean, you know, the businesses that qualify, they have a million dollars in revenue. We don't charge a million, a million dollars. Um, the cost is something like, uh, it's like less, it's less than 3% of your annual budget on legal. It's, it's pegged to, um, the national statistics on what people, what small businesses spend on legal support. And we have a value-based billing methodology that we use, um, to price that service. So the big thing is you're not paying by the hour. Like we wanted to get rid of the billable hour because the feeling was people won't use the service if we're just charging them for time. Instead, we want to deliver a really valuable service that they're going to use the heck out of yeah. and then just build them at like a flat subscription fee that's the same same amount every month so that they can budget for it. Mm. Um, and then the other problem was having a conversation about return on investment on legal services because most lawyers don't do that. They don't, mm. they don't even try to, and it's not their fault, right? They're just not trained to do that. They don't have the experience. They don't see the need. There are lots of reasons why they don't do it but it's hard to get a small business owner to decide to spend money on legal services, which can be relatively expensive. If you don't explain to them, okay, yes, you're making an investment in your business and you might spend, you know, $40,000 on legal this year, but you're going to make back that money. And then some, it's going to be a profitable proposition from cost savings, from, you know, growth potential, making your business more valuable, making it less stressful to run. And then, of course, improving resilience, the, the risk management component that everybody thinks of. Yeah. I really love what you do. And like you say, it's it's so cheap to pay that in comparison to having this massive lawsuit, right? Yeah. What, mm -hmm. what made you go for, because I serve small business owners um, and I've literally tailored my whole business before we push record, I said to you, like we're doing, you know, like everything near my business. And it's because I started serving small business owners on a level where they can actually afford my services, which is a monthly subscription, right? Yep. And um, so doing that is, it's not an easy process to set up because obviously as, a, as yourself, as a business owner, you take a massive cut salary wise because you need to you know you cater for people it's a long-term goal what made you decide to do that what made you decide to actually start serving small business owners and not just you know charge somebody thousands for your services because you can yeah um i mean make no mistake it's it's not like a race to the bottom on price for for what i do like i'm not trying to undercut anyone on on price um, I'm certainly not the most expensive lawyer, but I'm not the cheapest either. And, uh, you know, I feel like you, you tend to get what you pay for. And I tend not to compromise very much on, on price. Like I don't give a whole lot of discounts or anything like that. We do tend to do value adds, but I think your question is more about the market, right? So, um, I selected the small business market because it's close to my heart. It's, it's close to, um, 
what I care about and the kind of life that I want to live. I mean, I, if I wanted to be um, in a big law law firm, you know, like where you're just making a, a huge salary, but you're working 60 hours, 80 hours a week. I mean, not that I'm not doing that now, but, um, you know, working for someone else and you have these sort of minimum billable hour requirements. I mean, the, the culture and the pace and the, the strictures um, of it, working in a big law firm, yeah. are would be stifling for me personally. So part of it was, um, you can call it office culture, you know, the desire to be your own boss, you know, being, being an entrepreneur. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur myself, and so I get them. Um, I get entrepreneurs because I am one. I speak their language. I understand what's important to them. And really the biggest, the biggest hurdle that I ever have is getting them to believe that a lawyer actually cares about them and wants their business to succeed and doesn't, and doesn't have some ulterior motive. Like, I think I've, I've run up against people feeling like I, um, executive LP and the services we offer are just too good to be true. And they don't, they don't trust it. Like they're, they're kind of gun shy and it takes a lot of value delivery for us to kind of win them over. So we do a lot of, um, you know, continuing education or, you know, education style outreach, content marketing and that, like, that's why we do the podcast. That's, I've written hundreds of articles over the years, several reports, um, you know, I just put out a lot of high value content and then I, I do a, a lot of public speaking and teaching. Um, I teach other lawyers continuing legal education. And then I, I also do um, like veteran entrepreneurship training on small business formation and intellectual property issues and some other things. So. It's just a lot of that. And once people see where your heart is, they start to open up a little bit, you know, they start to listen a little more. Um, it's a bit of a slow burn in terms of, in terms of our like marketing and capturing a, a client. But um, once, once a client enters into our service ecosystem, they tend to have a long relationship with us because uh, they see that we actually care about them and we're there to make their business more valuable and, and help them any way we can. Yeah, and it makes sense to do that, right? Like you said, prevention. Yeah. That's, that's the whole idea. Um, yeah, I think that's a big thing that makes us different from other lawyers too, is if you're if you're billing by the hour, the goal is, or if you've, you're just on one project, you have just got you for this one lawsuit, or I'm drafting this one will, or this one contract, or doing this one real estate closing, it's always just one transaction. And so the lawyer has this incentive to get as much as you can because you don't know when the next client's coming. You know, you hope that there's another client coming in the door, but you kind of got to get while the getting's good. And for me, the the whole incentive structure is completely different. My incentive is to establish a real connection and a real relationship with someone and then maintain that for as long as I can. So I'm not looking to charge them as, as much as I can, um, especially not all at once. And we want to we want to kind of spread it out over time. That's good for me because it's it makes my uh, income less bursty. You know, it's not quite so up and down. It's a little more even keel. Um, so I can budget in my own life and for my family a little bit better. Um, but it also make it has the same effect on the client. You know, they're not coming up with a whole bunch of money all at once, so it doesn't disrupt their cash flow. Yes. Instead. You know, they, they, it's a monthly planned expense. They can budget for it. It's there. And then they can adjust their pricing for their goods and services if they need to. And ultimately, that's a, a good business owner will realize that they're not the ones really paying for legal services. Just like they're not the ones paying for any of the expenses in their business. Their customers are. 
because they pass those costs on to the consumer in the form of goods and price uh, goods and you know the prices for goods and services. Yes. And th the business owners that have a big price objection are the ones who who don't really understand budgeting. You know, like this is a this is a planned expense. You need to make it a part of your budget. Um, or the ones who resist, you know, allocating a certain amount of their budget to to legal for because they would rather just add that to their bottom line um, and take the risk that their legal issues will never become problems or crises. And that's just, a, you know, you're kind of gambling. You know, it's like uh, having a, a, a bomb with a timer and mm -hmm. it's going to go off eventually. You just don't know how much time's left on the clock. So uh, how does that work for you guys with with like liability insurance? Because most businesses have liability insurance, right? Which mostly should actually help them to prevent lawsuits or well, like cover lawsuits and things like that. So how does that because do you get that as like a, a feedback? You know, it's like, oh, well, I don't need you. I've got liability insurance. Is that anything sometimes something that pops up? Yeah, I mean, very rarely have I heard that particular, uh, like, I don't need you because I have liability insurance. I think most people understand that if they make a claim on their liability insurance, yeah. it's only good up to a certain amount. Um, and the amount of the risk might be greater than their, their policy limits or the, the limits on any particular claim on their policy. So that's one, one issue that the insurance might not fully cover all their risk. And then the other one is, so, say that it does, your premiums are going to go up, you know, oh. um, just like if you have an automobile accident and uh, you know car crash, and your insurer is going to raise your rates. Um, heck, if you get a ticket, they're probably going to raise your rates, right? So a speeding ticket or something. So uh, you want to? They'll find any excuse to raise your rates. So the best thing to do is reduce the risk. I, I have a good friend named Kevin Valley who is uh, he's in Trinidad and Tobago, and he he is a certified business valuator. And I was talking to him on our episode and on an episode of our podcast on profit from legal and he, he we were talking about what makes a business more valuable mm -hmm. and he said a business is more valuable as a function of two things one is risk and the other is growth the lower the risk the higher the growth the more valuable the business is and lawyers have mm -hmm. a strong influence on both of those things we can dramatically lower the risk profile for a business mm -hmm. we can also help you build assets especially intellectual property assets you know, build them, register, develop them, register them, protect them, you know, and nurture them, um, get help you get the most out of them. And that can directly impact growth in a positive way. So a lawyer is a huge value add. And, and what I tell people is if you're making a decision like I'm not going to hire a lawyer because uh, I already have insurance and I'm covered on that or I just don't see that I have any legal issues. I just don't understand how the law and regulations and in relationships with others impact my risk profile. Mm -hmm. um, if that's the case, if you just don't know, you can't, you've got legal blind spots, you can't see the risks um, and you're making those kinds of decisions uh, or having those as the, those issues as the basis for not hiring a lawyer. I encourage clients to really think about what they're saying and, and what they're saying is they're only looking at one dimension of their business. They're looking at the risk dimension. And that's not all lawyers are for. In every country in the world, lawyers have more or less a similar skill set. And the skill set comes down to two things. It's managing relationships, you know, structuring the relationships between people and businesses, managing relationships, mm -hmm. and solving problems. They're great analytical minds. You know, lawyers are trained to do issue spotting, critical analysis, um, you know, come up with creative solutions to problems. And so 
being a problem solver, being a uh, relationship manager is a useful thing for every business. And there's a huge trend towards in-house legal departments and away from outside general counsel. And part of the reason for that is more and more businesses want a lawyer on their team you know, as an employee in-house as soon as they can afford it because they realize that they do so much more than law now, um, that they actually do what we call legal operations. And that's why Executive LP started developing Profit From Legal because lawyers do more than just law. They do a bit of business strategy. They help solve problems. They help manage relationships within the business and between the business and vendors and suppliers, between the business and customers. And so we, we developed this, um, it's a, a legal operations function mm. install service. So if your business is in that $10 million to $50 million range where maybe you've had outside general counsel for a number of years, you want, maybe you want to keep them, but you want to also add an in-house lawyer or maybe start building a legal department for your business, you know that you need something to align the legal services of your, your legal department or your outside general counsel with your overall business goals, you know, what are your enterprise goals? What are your business operations looking? What do they look like? What are those workflows look like? Mm -hmm. And is legal a part of that? Yes. Because it should be, you know, legal should be integrated into those workflows. Mm -hmm. And that's what legal operations does, you know. And so we have profit from legal, which sets all that up. Um, over the course, it's, it's an eight week, you know, delivery time frame for that, for that particular product. And so we come in, work directly with the business to set up their legal operations function, either in their legal department, if they have one or with their outside general counsel, or even just laying the found foundation, even if they don't have that, those support, the legal support structure yet, laying the foundation for adding that on so that they can get the most out of those relationships. Very, very valuable and surprisingly inexpensive. It sounds amazing. I love it now. It's a, it's a really unique way to approach things within your business, you know, looking from the outside and it's a different structure, right? Mm -hmm. So this show is about going behind the scenes to see what makes people successful. And for different people, it looks different. So what yeah. do you contribute to your success? What do you think is that thing that drives you to be successful every day? Uh, I'm perhaps irrationally optimistic. <laughs> Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that trait. I think they, they don't think so much about the cost or the risk on the front end when they're excited about an idea and they don't let it, they don't let, uh, other people stop them from just plowing forward and they, they get all excited about an idea and then they just rush headlong into it without maybe considering all of the consequences. Um, I think that that is both. Uh, something that has contributed greatly to my success as well as something that's held me back. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm really honest, I can't, I can't claim that it's a hundred percent a positive thing because you know, it's uh, kind of two steps forward, one step back a lot of the time, cause you don't consider all the consequences. And so you kind of have to step back when things don't work out. Uh, sometimes they do work out and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and people say, well, that's just luck. And I, I often respond that luck is, is really just, the intersection of opportunity and preparation. You can make your own luck because it's luck is just opportunity plus preparation. You can cultivate opportunities. You can put yourself in communities and build connections with other people where you're more likely to have better opportunities. Mm -hmm. And you can be more and more prepared for the kind of opportunities you want to have every day. So if you do both of those things, you're really cultivating luck as a skill. 
And I've found that when I'm more prepared and when I'm, you know, getting out there and, and cultivating relationships and building opportunities for myself or building the conditions for opportunities to arise, yeah. um, I get a little luckier and I, I, ha I get to do less of the two steps forward, one step back. It's just two steps forward and then, you know, try again. Another thing is um, I have lost a lot in my life. Um, I almost have a pathological fear of loss. Um, I, I, I'm just like my family, I grew up very wealthy, but we lost everything. Like went from my dad pulling down, you know, seven figures to uh, would have been homeless if my grandmother had not taken me in. You know, it's like we literally lost the house, lost everything. I've seen what it looks like for a small business to collapse. Um, my dad's practice ultimately did not because he was a bad lawyer, but because he made some bad business decisions. And I realized early on that it's not just about being good at what you do. You also have to be good at the business of what you do. That's and even my dad, who's, you know, a much better businessman now. And, you know, he's, he's, he learned a lot from that and, you know, every, everybody kind of moved forward, moved on with their life. Um, but living through that experience, kind of losing everything. Um, was both traumatizing and and very instructive, and so that f the fear of failure, the fear of loss, really propels me to to work really hard every day. Now I'm responsible. You know, I have a wife and a son. I'm responsible for them, and so I want to take care of them and, and make sure that they never have to go through what I went through. Um, and it's just a powerful motivator to get up and consistently push every day, regardless of how you feel. You know, there's a big movement to just be happy. You know, just be your, live your best life and be, you know, sort of Instagram optimistic. Um, Barbara Ehrenreich gave this great talk called Smile or Die. And it was about uh, the dangers of corporate optimism, like being, being uh, having an optimistic, sunny disposition and a positive attitude always, no matter what, and how fake that is. And how that's actually, it keeps us from hearing okay. sort of the warning bells of, you know, authentic crit criticism that has your best interests in at heart. Mm. Uh, and so, like, I, I, I don't have that kind of optimism, but I have the kind of optimism that says, yeah, I'm going to fail mm. and I'm going to get knocked down. But for every time I get knocked down, I'm going to get, get back up and I'm going to keep going because I have people depending on me, people, you know, expecting great things of me. And so just a, like a ruthless tenacity, I guess would be in the, in the face of certain failure. I mean, every entrepreneur fail, fails at some point. Every scientist fails, every politician fails. Say, no matter what, your, what career path you choose, every businessman, everybody, right? They all fail. But what defines us is not our failures, but what, we, what lessons we learn from them and whether or not we get back up afterwards. So if I have any measure of success, and I'm not saying I do, but if I do, um, it's because I charge headlong into the fray um, I let I follow my passions and what I consider to be good ideas at the time and I I don't listen to the naysayers and then when I fail I don't let it get me down I just get right back up and try again with the lessons that I've learned from that and hopefully that'll be enough it's beautiful because if it, it's when you lie down and you sulk in your failures that you that you fail because you know it's the getting yeah. up part that's actually the thing that makes you eventually successful because you keep trying and trying I've got a big thing I heard someone I say once that, um, sorry to cut you off, but I, just with this one last little bit, I heard someone say once, you decide when the game is over. Exactly. The game doesn't end until you do. Decide. Like, yeah. how do you know that wasn't just the first half? Exactly. You yeah. know? And, and it's, so. 
And I completely agree with you because I literally restarted my entire business this year. It's like I was starting from scratch because I just changed everything. I didn't like the way it was going. And this is me throwing away two years of working in my business, but not throwing it away, really just reinventing the wheel. But it is literally like starting from scratch. And that's hard yeah. for a lot of people to do. And it's advice that I got from a mentor that said, listen, you're miserable. Why? <laughs> Why do this? And, it, and it's crazy when you realize that if you just speak to that somebody says, well, this is you know, have that conversation with somebody, that real conversation where you're mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, this is actually, why am I doing this? I don't need to do this. And it's, it's very true what you say. I completely agree. You should, you should have a mentor. I mean, I think that's brilliant that you have a mentor, that you're listening to them. And when I say don't listen to the naysayers, that doesn't mean don't listen to criticism from people who love you and want what's best for you. What I'm saying is if there are people out there who are just you know, being negative and they don't really get it. They're not, they don't really get you. They don't really get what you're about. And they're just like, uh, yeah. Or maybe they're, I don't know if that's going to work out. Or maybe they're jealous of your success. Um, you know, or they, they lack the courage and the ambition to really go out on a limb and do something as bold as, as on, you know, entrepreneurship, they would rather trade time for dollars and have the nine to five, which there's nothing wrong with, but it does feel a bit safer. Right. And so maybe they, that's their situation. And so they're kind of not able to relate to you, but the people that you need to surround yourself with and the people you really need to listen to are the people who do relate to you, who do work with entrepreneurs all the time, who are those kinds of support personnel like mentors, accountants, uh, marketing and sales experts, lawyers, bankers, insurance professionals. They all work with entrepreneurs all the time. They know what works and what doesn't because you're not their only client. Uh, they've seen it a hundred times before, and and mm -hmm. so you're you're um, kind of foolish if you hire one of those professionals and pay them a bunch of money for their opinion and then disregard that opinion. And it's like, for one thing, what are you getting? You know, what are you doing with your money? You're just throwing it away. And for another thing, like, do you really know better than they do? Do you know better than the expert? And so many of them will give you advice just for the asking. You know, don't be afraid to call up a lawyer and even to try to negotiate a rate or negotiate a flat fee for a project and say, look, I have this problem. I need a solution for this and I want to pay, pay a flat fee. I don't want to pay by the hour. What would you charge me? And you'll be surprised. You can actually negotiate for those things. Uh, a lot of people don't even try because they just, I, they self-reject. Yeah, I think it's yeah. not possible. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Very true. Don't self-reject. Yes. Don't self-reject. <laughs> That's always a mistake. My dad actually told me when I started Executive LP, he said, I, I don't think your business model is going to work. That's never going to work. And he was like, there just isn't a market for preventive legal services for small businesses. He said, trust me, I've, I've practiced law for 20 years. I've seen what works and what doesn't. And you know that there just isn't a big enough market for that. And small business owners are they're tight, you know, they're cheap, they're they have a scarcity mindset, they're worried about protecting what they have and they've bootstrapped up and they're undercapitalized. So they're just not gonna part with the kind of money that you're gonna need them to pay for your business to make it. And he wasn't entirely wrong because that those have been challenges that I've had to confront. But here I am, you know, here here my practice is eight years later making it. Um, not like, I'm not a multimillionaire by any stretch, right? But um, my business is profitable. I'm able to make an impact. I'm able to serve my clients. And I've made a difference in the world already. I've saved my clients millions of dollars. 
And that's saying a lot when many of my clients don't make more than a million dollars a year. Yes. So the, the ability to have an impact that's meaningful, to really execute on the mission that your business has, that's really, really fulfilling. And if you can make a living and, and like, you know, live a decent life, you don't have to be rich and you don't have to be famous. And there are so many people chasing Instagram glory and they need to stop and realize that's not what success really means. That's not what life is about. It's about being able to do good for others and, and show other people that you care about them and love on them and have enough left over at the end of the day for your family and, and keep the lights on and get up and do it again the next day and just do that relentlessly for, for as long as you can. That's the way that you leave a legacy. Yes, I, I love that now. And you know, the, the most interesting thing is most of the Instagram people that have like those followers, they don't actually make money. You know, and it's just because you have a big following doesn't actually mean that you're profitable. I mean, I know personally of somebody that has like a massive following on Instagram and they're broke because they don't actually make the money because there's not real impact. And it's that impact and profit. And that's like the slogan that I just go by, impact and profit, because it's so important to make the impact first and the profit will automatically just come. You don't have to try very hard for that. And there are so many people too. I mean, it's easy to kind of... Um to take the cheap shots at the Instagram influencers or whatever, right? Like, I don't, I don't uh, envy them their success, and I don't, I don't yeah. have a problem with anyone taking that path to success. Exactly. But it's kind of like trying to make it in in LA or you know, or in Nashville if you want to be a singer songwriter or a movie star or an actor or stage actor in New York. It's kind of like for every one person that really gets a huge following like that, there are how many tens of thousands or perhaps hundreds of thousands of users that don't have that success and. I'm connected to some pretty successful and influential people. Um, and you're right that followers don't directly necessarily translate into revenues, but perhaps the, the bigger worry for me isn't so much that you can't make money doing it because obviously you can, if you can. monetize that correctly and you, you, you know, have a good business strategy to go along with your content strategy, content strategy will get you followers, but it, it's not necessarily a business plan. But if you have a good business plan to go along with it, you can make some good money. One of my friends recently just went from zero to 400,000 followers on TikTok, And um, I won't say who they are, but um, just a very successful self-promoter, um, very talented person, just the kind of person that you would see on Instagram, smart, beautiful, charming, just an amazing person. Um, but then I look at the TikTok content that that was created to generate to have that effect, and I, I maybe there is a lot of value that people find in that beyond just entertainment value. Uh, maybe there maybe that's uh, having a big positive impact in the world that I'm not aware of. Um, but I ask myself, like, would I spend the same amount of time, energy, effort, resources, whatever it took to do that? Um, to get the same outcome. I don't know that I would. I'm not here to criticize. I'm certainly not. Um, because I think that the person who did that has the capacity to use that platform that they've built. They, they might even say, well, it's about building the platform, building the following. And once you have it, you can pivot slightly and start delivering more value. Um, if you try to deliver a bunch of value to, to people when you have a smaller platform, it just doesn't go as far. You don't have the impact that you want to have. So you kind of have to have the big platform to have the impact. I suspect that might be the, the answer to my um, skepticism about the value of that. But um, and maybe that's the way it is. But I haven't had a conversation with them yet. I would like to. Um, 
But I, I encourage everybody to ask yourself why. Why are you doing what you're doing? If you're an entrepreneur, if you're trying to build a social media following, if you're trying to build a big audience and a platform, you have a podcast or whatever, why are you doing it? What is the impact you wanna make in the world? Mm -hmm. Because success, and I wanted to come on this podcast and talk about what makes you successful, yes. because success, material success, fame, mm -hmm. money, all of that is, is not a means to its own end. You need to ask yourself what you're gonna do with all that. I mean, look at Bill Gates, like the guy's worth just what, 70 some odd billion dollars. And he's, he can't give it all away before he's dead. You know, like he can't, he, it, you could, he could spend every day giving away his whole fortune and would struggle to give away all that money. Um, I think people who have a lot of success end up with, uh, well, what's the old, it's like the old rap song, right? Mo money, mo problems. Like you end up with a lot of, you're, you're not really better off. You're just trading one set of problems for a different, different, different set problems. of problems. Yeah. yeah. So you need to know in advance, like, what are you going to do when you, when you reach your success first define it, what does that look like for you? And then when you get there, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I agree. Hashtag goals is like a, I used to coach one-on-one -on -one and um, setting goals for small business owners. I realized early on in my coaching that it's something that a lot of people struggle with and for me i never i've just always been good in setting goals and achieving them and came naturally to me but then i realized it's not a it's not a thing you know a lot of people do struggle with it do you have like a blueprint or a set of rules that you use to set goals and achieve them yeah i mean we I like the smart goals format. I mean, if it's not broken, don't, don't fix it. Um, but, but I do some philosophical variation on smart. Um, so, so, uh, so I take a more existential and holistic approach, you know, I'll sit down and, um, start, start off, uh, getting people like our signature method, we call the five legal E's. Okay. And because nobody likes legalese, you know, the sort of legal speak, gobbledygook legalese, but everybody does like our legal ease, the five legal ease. Um, and they start off with encounter. So the first thing we want to do before we set any goals for anyone mm -hmm. is ask them where they are and how that makes them feel. Yep. Like, how would you describe your current situation? How do you feel most days? Not how do you feel today, but how do you feel most days? Um, and, you know, are you living a life that you're proud of? and then the life that you're proud of. And then the next question is, and this is a really, really uncomfortable one. It, it's not like trigger warning uncomfortable, but it's, it's pretty uncomfortable for a lot of people. They don't want to think about this and most people will kind mm -hmm. of resist it, right? Yeah. The question is, imagine you're on your deathbed. Like right now, you're dying. You don't have a week. You don't have a month. You don't have a year. You, you're in the middle of dying right now what do you regret not doing? Mm. Yep. Do that. Yeah. Um, You're feeling very emotional about, about this. Yeah, I am. I am. Why, it's, why it's, is it's, that? Uh, There's a big trigger well, there for you. What is that? Yeah, it's no, because, because I live with that question every day. Yeah. Uh, I've lost, a, I've lost people and, uh, I've seen I've seen things kind of fall apart for people before. My my wife has recently lost a couple of of close friends, and um, yeah, I am. I, it does make me emotional because, and it should make everyone. It should make everyone emotional. Like it it should have an it should have a profound effect on you mm -hmm. to really think about 
the end of your life and think about like put yourself in the frame of mind as best you can that you're going to have on that last day and and ask yourself how things how you wish things were different because it's it's the stuff that you didn't do that you regret more than the things that you did do i mean every mistake that you actually make just about i mean the ones you survive right the ones you survive can make you stronger because you can learn lessons from them it's the the things that you don't do that you end up regretting the most and so I don't want people to have those regrets. Um, I I uh, have seen what that looks like, and it's it's devastating. Mm-hmm. So I want to help people as best I can, at least in a professional context, to really die without regrets, to to live their life well, and for that to be really meaningful. It's it's profoundly important to me because it's something that I think about every day. Um, I don't need to pin it to my wall. I don't need to write it on my bathroom mirror. I don't need a constant reminder because every day I wake up knowing that this could be the last day and there's really no way to tell you're not promised tomorrow. You might be in great health and step out in the street and that's it. And you have to live every day at least taking directionally correct steps towards Um, The things that really are going to not just make you happy because happiness is so transient, but that give you meaning and value and purpose in your life. Um, Not just this sort of emotional happiness, but a deep sense of peace and contentment, you know, knowing that you you lived a life that was that was worthy of respect. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it is. It is that. So that's the explore step. We do that. We ask people where we want to go and we kind of dial it down a little bit after that. We ask, you know, you're on your deathbed. What what would you regret? But then we dial it down and say, okay, what about, you know, can you be 10 years from now? What does being closer to that outcome look like five years from now, three years, one year? We kind of help them make plans in that way and set those goals. And then Uh, After that, there's enrich. We look at all the systems, Mm -hmm. like what are you doing right now? What are your habits? What are your habits look like? What are your systems and processes look like? Which ones are directionally correct? Which ones are not? The ones that are not get trimmed. And the ones that are kind of borderline, we say, well, what tweaks and adjustments could we make to get them directionally correct? And if there aren't any, then they get trimmed as well. Um, So it's encounter, explore, enrich. That's that step. And then envision, we talk about clarity and the importance of um, being able to regularly achieve a flow state and be highly productive where you're in this state like of flow it. of just like, like super momentum. focused. Yeah, like you're in momentum mm-hmm. and you're just going. I like that, yeah. And then communicating that vision yeah. of what that looks like to your team and everybody that supports so that everybody's very crystal clear on exactly what you do, how you do it, and how they can help. They know their place in your the ecosystem of, of your activity. And then finally, there's the enforce step, which funny, funnily enough is that's what everybody thinks of when they think of lawyers, they think of enforce. But before you can really lay down systems and processes and contracts and handbooks and policy manuals and all of that, that are meaningful and effective and really have a, the, the optimal impact on getting you where you want to go. First, you have to have the conversation about where you are, where you want to go, what's working and what isn't, who on your team needs to be aligned with your vision. And once you've got all that stuff done in the first four legal E's, you can craft really great legal outcomes, really great legal solutions. And that's the enforced step. And that's where kind of the rubber meets the road and everything clicks. Can we just quickly, re- sorry, can you just quickly call them out again? Yeah, it's encounter, explore, enrich, envision, and enforce. Yep. The five legal E's, and you can go to profitfromlegal.com, 
and take our, um, you, there's like a link to take the legal profitability scorecard. And when you do, you'll get, um, when you complete the legal profitability scorecard, uh, then you get two things. One of them is our Five Legal E's Canvas, which is a free tool that you can use. Mm -hmm. It has all the Five Legal E's printed in there, mm -hmm. and then it has an exercise to help you with any any decision that you want to improve, any relationship you want to improve. You can apply that methodology to it, and it's got like a little exercise in there to help you do that. That's one of the gifts. And then the other gift is a free legal profitability report where we unpack the concept of legal profitability. What is it? Why is it important? And how can you get started improving it in your business? So um, if you want the five legal ease canvas, all you have to do to get it is just complete the profit from legal scorecard and uh, the UR, you can just go to profitfromlegal.com and follow the link there to get to that That's free awesome. resource. Like I said, just giving stuff away. Yeah. That's what we want to do. That's great. Great right? That's value. Awesome. I recommend you guys go check that out because it's um it's a really great I think it's a great resource and I like the way that you you, you know you've mentioned them and how they you know work together. So mm -hmm. this show I always ask this one special question and that is sure. for people. Okay, so my audience is a mixed breed of people, as in it's people that already have a business but they're struggling to go to the next level, or they're just a little bit stuck. And there's also the other side of the coin where people have not yet started their business because they're sitting on the fence and they're just really struggling to give themselves that push or maybe they had started they failed and they're just struggling again to get you know to get going again what advice would you have for somebody that are sitting on the fence and they're like i don't know if i can do this entrepreneurial thing um i would say there are two two bits of advice mm -hmm. the first bit of the first bit of advice is don't start alone. You do need, like, there's so much advice out there of just get started, just do it. Um, that's true, and that's that's good advice, that's accurate, but just doing it and just getting started doesn't necessarily mean put a product in the marketplace for sale. That's not what starting a business looks like, right? Starting a business can look like writing a business plan and finding the right partners that you that you've identified in that business plan that are necessary to make your business work and uh, the biggest part i think of a business plan that gets frequently overlooked and taken for granted is the organizational chart and for a lot of entrepreneurs they're going to fall into two one of two roles in the organizational chart and a big mistake they make is trying to do them both themselves um, so in the org chart there's the ceo and then there, beneath them, there's the chief operator, the chief executive officer, CEO for and people who don't speak the lingo yet. You'll get there. It's all good. Then the COO, the chief operating officer. Then you have the chief financial officer, the CFO. And then you have the head of marketing and sales. Yeah. So in the org chart, you've got this one. The founder usually is the CEO, usually, not always, but yeah. at the top. And then beneath the executive officer, you have these other three functions. They're all equal in, in terms of being essential to the business. You can't really do everything you need to do without all four of them. And it, your business will be best if those four roles are not covered by the same person. And really that you don't have more than one person, you know, or you don't have one person covering more than one of those roles. So if your CEO is also your COO, you can do that for a while, but it's not ideal and you should get out of that situation as soon as you can. For a lot of entrepreneurs, they're either going to be a good CEO or they're gonna be a good COO their chief operating officer. And this is because most people are either good at what they do or they're good at the business of what they do, but rarely both. Very, very rarely are you good at both. And 
So you can be a technician in your business and really focus on like making whatever it, you, it is you make and like developing your systems and processes. And, um, like I have a, a friend who makes, um, who I don't want to say what he makes because you'll know exactly who he is right away, but he makes really cool product and he does not like dealing with or thinking about the business of what he does. He doesn't want to think about marketing. He doesn't want to think about sales. He wants someone else to deal with that. He wants to outsource all of that. He doesn't want to deal with the executive function. He wants to be in the shop making what he makes because he's an artisan. He's a craftsman and he's really very good at it and getting better like with every product he makes. He does custom work and he's just really great. Um, so he, he is a great chief operating officer, the guy to be in charge of the process of how stuff gets made. But what I told him he needs is like, you need a CFO, you need someone in that role. You can outsource that function early on in your business to an accountant. You need a chief executive officer. So get a business manager, someone to help you manage and, and kind of keep, uh, everything, all the plates spinning and keep everything going, keep your appointment book. Um, you know, manage all of your teams and all of that, and then get a marketing firm to do your marketing and sale, you know, and then get a commissioned salesperson or someone to help you with sales and help you with like processing your orders and all of that, that sort of thing. Um, if you have to have your CEO kind of doing double duty um, with some sales functions, that's, that's a good clutch early on, but obviously you want your CEO doing high level business development and execution as soon as possible, like kind of managing everything that's going on. Yeah. Um, it's also good to have a, a key person of influence that's associated with your brand, with your business, someone who's, you know, a recognizable face in the industry. And, and that can take some time to build and that's fine. Um, but the other, but, but have the org chart, right? Really focus on your organizational chart when you're doing your business plan and keep in mind that while you will be tempted to put one person in multiple roles because of the low cost of doing that, it, it's still, it's a hidden cost. It doesn't take the cost away. It doesn't really lower the cost. It just hides it. Yeah. And the hidden cost is opportunity cost. It's the cost of doing this versus doing something else. And when you stretch one person too thin, they're not free to do all the other things that really they need to be focusing on doing. And people are best when they specialize on exactly. one thing, do one thing really, really well. Yeah. So that's the org chart and the business plan. That's that's advice number one. Advice number two is do not start undercapitalized. You need money to start your business. And that's a very unpopular, that's a very unpopular bit of advice because it, it, it quote unquote holds people back, but it's horrible. I, like I've done it. My business right now, I started the, my law firm right now. I started it undercapitalized. I made $12,000 my first year. And if my wife had not been employed, I, it would have failed before it even got off the ground, right? I was successful and I, I bootstrapped because I had a loving spouse who was able to work with me. And at the time we didn't have kids. And so she was like, yeah, you know, do your thing, live your dream. You build that. I'll work over here. We'll, we'll figure it out. And without her support, I never could have been successful in, in my business. So I'm, I'm lucky, um, in that I had her support yeah. early on, but don't do that. Like go out and find, uh, you know, go with your, your four people, your four, four man business or four person business, um, leadership team, your CEO, CFO, COO, chief, head of marketing and sales, and your strong business plan, and then pitch your concept to an investor or get a business loan and really have a good handle on your numbers 
know your numbers, know your projected costs for your first year, for the first six months, but really that first year, you're really gonna need to know what it's gonna cost you to run that business and become profitable. And then get enough money, whether it's a business loan or some kind of investment, get enough money to run it well and do it right. And don't skimp on things like marketing, don't skimp on advertising, don't skimp on legal, and don't skimp on accounting. If you cut corners there, it will hurt your business in the long run. So start right with the right people and enough money to get going and you'll have a much better chance of success. That is the most unusual advice that I've had on here because normally it would be the, because I am big on coaching um, you know, don't do business loans because I mean, I bootstrap my business and every other entrepreneur I know has not taken out a single cent in loans because you just bootstrap. And I guess, it, and it, I think the only saving grace is really investing in your marketing and your sales. You know, first just get, if you have a product and just keep going and sell this product until you make enough money to hire people, right? And that's like, that's the way it goes without having to do loans. But yeah, it, it can go either way, but I'll tell you yeah. one way is easier and, and it, yeah. and, and there's less, there's less real risk and less real danger. Yeah. If your business entity is properly structured and you're not personally liable for the debt, um, you know, that it, and so you need to, that's part of the part of don't skimp on a lawyer, hire the lawyer in advance. You really need the lawyer before you need anybody else because it's the lawyer that manages the relationship. So at the point where you've got several people together and you're you're going to start the business together, you know, even if it's just two of you or three of you, you don't maybe don't have the whole team, um, but you're going to start the business and start like a corporation or a limited liability company or something like that, depending on what jurisdiction you're in um, and the other factors that are relevant. Um, once you have all of that sorted, go and talk to the lawyer and ask them, how can we structure this business so that we're not personally responsible? A lot of times lenders will ask for a personal guarantee, but you can short circuit that request by getting like buying a letter of credit or putting up some kind of collateral, something like that. And when you have the money on the front end to, to spend on advertising and on marketing without having necessarily having sales and proof of concept, um, it can really amplify your growth faster. Like rapid growth comes from advertising, marketing, and being able to deliver a remarkable result quickly. Mm -hmm. And money, like having a well-capitalized business, having investors, or even having debt on the front end is not a, an impediment to success. It's not, a, it's not a big hurdle because if you have those revenues, you can pay off the debt. Exactly. Um, it's, it's so, I, what I see is so many people un, so undercapitalized that they never get to the point where they're making the sales. They're not, they don't generate enough revenue to be able to do any marketing or advertising and they just they stay small and, and in starvation mode for years yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I would say it'd be better for them to go take the business loan and, and yeah. buy some advertising. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you on that. And that's why I started my subscription thing because there's so many small business owners that don't have the capital to hire this big marketing agency or consultancy to come in where they, it costs them like a few thousand dollars a month because they either don't have it or they don't see the value in paying for it. And then they just stay this tiny little company and work 60, 70 hours a week and not make a profit. And they, like you say, in that spot for years and years and years, um, and, and if you're a service provider or a, a yeah. products provider where you're, you're selling things that are 
you know, too expensive for people to pay for. It's going to be disruptive to their cash flow. They need a financing option. Um, Another thing to do is to consider working with a finance partner for your goods and services. If you're starting a business, ask yourself how your customers are going to come up with the money to pay you. And if the answer is, well, they could always put it on a credit card, consider that a lot of them won't because they're they're averse to loading themselves up with credit card debt. But if you can offer them very attractive finance terms, and I'm not talking about self-finance, I'm talking about through a financing partner, if you can go out and find someone to do financing for your goods and services and you can say well uh, we work with this finance company and they will offer you easy monthly payments six months no interest or whatever six months same same as cash or whatever you see this a lot like there's a a company here in my hometown called uh, discount tire and if you have their in-store account credit card or whatever you can put four new tires on your car and it's six months same as cash after six months you start paying interest mm-hmm. um so i think that's a really great and and discount tire they're getting paid in full in advance from the finance company so as the service provider or the goods provider you're getting pulled you're getting paid up front the risk isn't on you it's on the, the finance company and you don't have to worry about accounts receivable so much because you're getting paid from the financier and the finance company's getting paid on interest for people who don't, you know, pay it off at zero percent, yes, or whatever. So yeah. building those relationships can can also get you in in uh, the profitability and yeah. lower your expenses sooner. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And yes, the bright ways to do that as well. No, this has been fantastic. Where can people reach you? Um, we, obviously, you did mention your website in between the the questions and so on. But can you please just tell people where they can reach you and basically, you know, what you can do for them? Yeah, sure. So I can do a couple of things for you. I can um, just talk to you like a human for one thing, right? That would because be good. We're both, <laughs> we're both just people. I'm not just out to to sell legal services yeah. or whatever. I mean, I am, and that's how I make my living. But at the same time. It's more important for me to connect with people and deliver something that's valuable and that's that's really the right fit for them than to just be like, here's my package, buy it or don't. Um, so go to executivelp.com slash contact. Executive LP is Executive Legal Professionals. That's the name of my firm, as I said. But our website is executivelp.com slash contact. And you can fill out the contact form. It will go right to my email inbox and... Um, I will respond to you in a timely manner. And um, you can also connect with me on Facebook. We have two, we have a Facebook group and a LinkedIn group for Profit From Legal. So you just search for Profit From Legal. But if you join the, the Facebook group, make sure you agree to the rules. We've had a lot of people, I think, because I've been appearing on some podcasts and people have tried to join. But if they, if they don't agree to the Facebook group rules, then I will reject their uh, application to join. But if you join the Facebook group, you know, you can you can get resources from us right there in the group. We do events, we do, you know, um, product launches, announcements and stuff like that. And then um, profitfromlegal.com. If you go there, you'll interact with the legal operations function install um, product and you can take that profitability scorecard and when you complete the profitability scorecard, not only do you, do you get the free gifts that um, I mentioned, but there's also a link in there to book in for a 10-minute chat with me. So if you want to talk to me directly, um, you know that's a, a great way to do it. Just hit up that profitability scorecard. And the scorecard is great at evaluating how well your legal support is already contributing to your profit profitability and where there's room for improvement. That's what that tool does. It's a digital diagnostic for your legal profitability. Super valuable, even if you're even if you think, well, 
I don't have legal support yet. They're, the answer is like, I'm going to get nothing. I'm going to get 0%, right? Um, even if that's true, reading the questions in the scorecard will be valuable for you because you'll start to get a sense of what it is that a lawyer can do in your business to contribute to the value of your business, to yeah. contribute to lowering your stress and lowering your risk profile. So you have a better sense of what it is that a lawyer does when, when you do decide to work work for one by taking the scorecard. It's a, it's a good that's tool. Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much, Noel. This is amazing. Um, I think Thanks everybody for having me. that has not ever thought of having a legal service, I'm thinking at least the gears in the heads are starting to turn. I'm like, oh, one, one, one. the gears are turning. It's like, hmm. Hopefully. <laughs> you know, yeah. it is, it's, it's a necessary, it's a, you just have to have it. You know, it's just. Yeah, like, definitely. I appreciate your well, time. Thank you so much thank for. You so much. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for having me on as a guest. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye.